Hello and welcome to another episode of Stroke FM. We are joining you today on the 30th of March 2020. It is a difficult time for the world. It's a difficult time for those of us here in Canada, specifically in Toronto. Uh, we will try to keep the discussion lighthearted as much as possible, but also we're here to discuss something quite important, which is a protocol for running a code stroke as a designation called a protected code stroke in order to correctly have uh, the assessment and the protection for the healthcare providers for patients that are coming in as acute strokes during this COVID-19 pandemic. And we have a manuscript that's coming out in stroke on this. And I have the great privilege of being joined by our Stroke FM team, including one of the co-authors. It's a great privilege to be with you today. Thanks, Human. Uh, this is Pav, a senior neurology resident and aspiring stroke neurologist. And this is Jamie. I'm a incoming PGY1 resident to the uh, Toronto Neurology Program. Thank you, guys. And it's Human Kostraveni here, one of the stroke doctors in Toronto. Thank you guys for joining uh, today to talk about this. And uh, it's so wonderful to have uh, everyone here with different um, kind of perspectives on this and uh you know a lot of what we're going to talk about is is common sense but some of it is 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 uh nuanced and so we thought to do this podcast to bring all those out um as we said the details of the protocol will be in the show notes uh we have a manuscript that's coming out soon and we're more than happy to answer questions uh, uh my co-host and myself if we can help lend a hand uh make this a reality for your center especially in centers where they are uh, trainees and uh, trainees that uh, benefit from having this type of uh, protection uh, when a code stroke is happening. So without any further ado, let's jump right in. Um, Jamie, why don't you kick us off on sort of your understanding of maybe why this is important, and then Pav can tell us kind of uh, from his perspective, and then we can talk about how it came about. Uh, yeah, so um, I, I guess I can start here by saying that uh, we, we recently had uh, an episode where we were talking about all the changes that have happened since the start of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic and how it's really affected not only um, uh, healthcare, but also the surrounding community as well. Um, so certainly, um, we've had to make major changes, not only in our daily lives, but obviously in how we run things in the hospital and how procedures have had to be run. And so um, obviously, you can't just kind of go about things day to day with the with the high risk that uh, that COVID-19 has on both not only healthcare, uh, patients and healthcare professionals. Um, so uh, there's definitely been a, a huge need and guidance for how we should run specific procedures like a stroke um, in uh, the context of a pandemic. Right. That's Those are all excellent points. Pat, from your perspective, I mean, you were part of the team kind of creating this together. I'll kind of give a bit of a history of how it came about, but but go ahead and tell us, like, why do you think this is important and what has been the experience of your resident colleagues? Right. So, I mean, as you mentioned before, these are very challenging times and the, the situation is rapidly evolving. Uh, as we speak, we have uh, more than a thousand cases, a um, thousand new cases in, in Canada alone today. Um, so early on, uh, when this pandemic was evolving, I remember uh, being on call at uh, one of the hospitals uh, that we rotate through. Um, and at the back of my mind, I, I sort of thought, well, how do we really know uh, when our code stroke patients are arriving with uh, symptoms that may be suggestive of COVID because we don't usually look out for symptoms like that. We're very ultra-focused on their neurologic symptoms when it began and uh, essentially how we we can treat that potential stroke. Uh, but in these sort of uncertain times, 
um, that was uh, definitely at the back of my mind. And uh, one of the things I kind of kept thinking about was, uh, should we be wearing PPE? But all I keep hearing about is how there's PPE shortage everywhere. Am I wasting it? Um, how can we sort of better tune uh, our need and balance that with the risks we're facing? So essentially, I think that's where it was kind of um, arose from this idea. Yeah, and that's great. It looks like, you know, a lot of people have been probably thinking around this and it, it was very fortuitous that a bunch of us got together and put it together. I myself was traveling and managed to get back to Canada right before things really got bad. And as soon as I arrived, I contacted one of our co-authors who is uh, not on the podcast just due to physical distancing and also because he's very busy, Lowell Notario. He's the emergency department educator. And I, and I called him on the Friday night saying, we have to come up with a protocol, Lowell. And we started kind of pushing some of these ideas forward. And then Pav and I started working on all of this on Sunday night. And then we worked extensively together uh, virtually over many, many late nights and, and, and got uh, uh, figures and manuscript in. And then, and then it's been fine-tuned as much as possible with all the nuances. So that's the story. Um, and thankfully, uh, it's going to hopefully go out and help others uh, uh, who have also had these concerns. So with that, let's jump in. I'll just give a brief overview. So essentially, the concept of a protected code is described and is understood in the world of resuscitation and intensive care medicine. It has um, been designated as such for code blues, which are cardiopulmonary arrest, but there's been no description in the literature of those concerns in the context of a code stroke. And even though we're dealing with this pandemic now, there might be, God forbid, another situation like this in the future. And so this concept of uh, nuances of patients that present with vascular-like or vascular actual vascular events in the context of a pandemic or other illnesses that could trigger a stroke uh, comes to mind. So this protocol starts with notification, and then what we like to talk about uh, uh, subsequent to notification and screening, the concept of the actual code, which has two components, which is PPE and crisis resource management. So let's just start talking about that. So what are uh, some of the things that come to your mind, Jamie? Like, what, like when you look at this protocol, which is you know on the show notes as well. Uh, when when a when a code pager goes off, what are some of the things that you would be worried about uh, in during the time of a pandemic when a code stroke pager goes off? One of the first things, uh, you know, speaking from my experience on on my electives uh, on the stroke team, um, is, is that a great deal of information actually comes in before the patient even arrives into uh, the emergency department. Um, and so obviously, first things that come to mind for me is, is it possible that this person um, is infectious? Um, is it possible this person could uh, actually have COVID-19 uh, uh, and also exhibiting uh, symptoms of a stroke? Um, so those are those are things that I would like to know, obviously, beforehand. Uh, so I know kind of what situation I'm getting myself into. Um, I know if I need to, you know, have PPE available. Um, I also know if I have to run any sort of specialized protocols uh, in such an event. Right. So we'll get into those details in a moment. But Pav... So he mentioned kind of stroke and infection. So how does that all come together? Like why why would those even be together now and even in the best of times when there's no pandemic? Can you kind of unpack that a bit? Right. So um, I think a key point here is is that uh, with this ongoing pandemic, the knowledge is evolving, and already we're seeing sort of uh, anecdotal evidence and some case reports of uh, patients who are presenting with purely neurologic symptoms before they evolve into the more infectious symptoms. And sometimes the neural symptoms themselves may be the initial presentation of COVID-19, which is kind of a scary thought, but 
that's why we've sort of designed this protocol to sort of give you those uh, red flags um, to, to make you think of it. Right. So kind of what you're saying is that not only can COVID-19 infection exacerbate underlying comorbidities. So, for example, we were talking about um, sort of offline that, you know, you may have COVID-19 or a person may have it and that may exacerbate their atrial fibrillation. That maybe was, uh, you know, they have the substrate, they have left atrial dilatation, but they physiologically they just weren't pushed enough. And the illness unmasks maybe on and off asymptomatic AFib and they present with a de novo stroke, for example. That would be one mechanism. Um, but, but as you said, there's also stroke mimics that could present with things like encephalopathy, confusion, decreased level of alertness, um, and, and those things can also present with neurology, even though the person has, uh, no symptoms otherwise yet, because they, they're actually, uh, that is, that is kind of their symptomatic equivalent, if you will. Has there been any stories about like a recrudescence of a previous stroke exacerbated by COVID-19? Well, I haven't personally read of any stories like that, but it's certainly possible, right? I mean, one of the things we say is a potential stroke mimic is the unmasking of old deficits uh, when someone has an infection or other sort of uh, stressor in the body. So I think that's certainly possible, especially as patients uh, sort of progress and become uh, sicker in the course of COVID-19. But uh, I, I personally haven't seen that yet. That's a very good point, both of you, that yes, if someone has had a previous stroke with uh, deficits that have resolved because of essentially some element of neuroplasticity that they will present with stroke-like symptoms and their deficits when their body is physiologically taxed by this virus, in addition to this virus on its own causing infection. In fact, there is some data that suggests after, you know, uh, for example, this type of pervasive infection that cases of stroke actually sometimes go up sometimes after or, or many weeks into the uh, into the pandemic. Now, as, as Pav said, like the interesting thing is that we're, it's very early in the course of this uh, pandemic. And uh, even though it's, uh, it's occurred in many other countries already in more more advanced stage, but this is a new virus. And, and let's not forget, we, we have not encountered this before. And it's going to cause all kinds of things that we don't fully understand. Right now, all healthcare systems are just trying to cope with what is going on. And It'll be in the coming months that people will have interesting case presentations about how it presented this way or another way. So if we jump into it, under screening, we have two sections. Uh, we kind of talked about pre-notification. It's in, in systems where ambulance or EMS calls the hospital and says, we have a patient that has any of these symptoms like fever, cough, chest pain, uh, dyspnea, headache, myalgias, and also GI symptoms, which can be present in up to 10% of COVID-19 patients. We then know that we're going to be dealing with a protected code stroke. What about travel? Initially, when we designed the protocol, we spoke about having a contact who's traveled or if the patient themselves uh, traveled anywhere. Uh, that being said, uh, that's becoming uh, less and less relevant as community transmission rates are becoming higher. I mean, as of a few days ago, uh, the stats showed that 50% of cases in Ontario were community transmission. Um, so although it, it it should still be asked because it provides some valuable uh, information. Uh, just because someone doesn't have a travel history doesn't mean they have COVID-19. Can I just ask something? Um, just taking a look at all the sort of symptoms that come along with, you know, sort of an initiation for the protected code stroke. Um, it looks like it's, it's quite broad, actually, um, and it encompasses quite a number of symptoms. I just, I just want to know, like, how, how much do you rely on, like, the, the history that, uh, you know, comes in from the outside because um, it seems like, you know, even with a, with a hemorrhagic stroke, people will complain of headache, GI symptoms, all that stuff can obviously be associated with stroke. 
but you know, how do you kind of delineate whether that's been infectious or whether it's it's due to their condition? That's a great question. I mean, we're at a time where because this condition, this virus is highly infectious, and even though the disease state, you know, appears to be eighty percent mild and potentially asymptomatic in many individuals, those that get it get severely sick. ICU admission rates are anywhere between five percent and up to twenty percent, and it includes young people and old people. So when you think about this protocol, does it have a good specificity of, of, of screening for a stroke? It does not. Does it have some sensitivity in making the individual running the code or the team running the code have a heightened sense of alertness with regards to making this code a protected designation? That's truly the purpose of this protocol. So the protocol tries to pick out you know, potentially with a bit of overcall, if you will, or at least a safety margin to pick up features with regards to the history of an infectious screen, travel, or other things that we'll talk about shortly that trigger the heightened sense of awareness so that when we assess this patient in the hyperacute setting, we have a protection on given the ambiguity um, of these symptoms. I mean, in some ways, Jamie, patients have always presented with these ambiguous symptoms in the context of actual stroke or stroke mimic, and we've never kind of worried about it. In fact, when someone shows up, you know, with a, with stroke-like symptoms and we find out it was a migraine or a seizure or something, God forbid, much worse, like an aortic dissection, we recognize it, we deal with it. The trouble is that someone presenting with COVID-19 to a, you know, a team of, let's say, three or more providers in a code stroke now exposes many people to a very potentially dangerous uh, pathogen, including spreading uh, uh, fomites or infectious particles uh, throughout the healthcare encounter, which includes the resuscitation room, travel to the CT, the CT scanner itself, possibly the neuroangiography suite, and onwards. And so the, the purpose of this is to raise the flag early to say there's something about this type of symptoms in the time of a pandemic that should heighten the alertness and designation of the code to the protected designation. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, no, that was really well said. I I mean, ultimately it comes down to one line and that's that we should have a low threshold to activate a protected code stroke and that's what it's achieving. Can you talk more about that, Pav? The next sort of big flag we have under the screening area is about exactly what you mentioned, historical and exam features. Can you kind of walk us through that, please? Right. So you know, ultimately, we may or may not be able to get a history of these infectious symptoms, uh, but there's certain signs that we can see that may act as surrogates for that history. And so if we see that the patient is not able to communicate or we're just getting an unclear history, or if they just have decreased uh, level of consciousness with possible presyncope or syncope, that should uh, be a red flag for us. And actually just we should proceed with a, a protected code stroke. Um, and, and that's where that sort of low threshold comes to play. Um, and in fact, when you look at the protocol, one of the sort of comments we make is physician discretion and clinical judgment. Uh, so when something just doesn't smell right uh, and you have a sort of a suspicion, then you should proceed with a protected code stroke uh, for the safety of everyone involved. That's right. Because patients can present with symptoms of sepsis or some sort of you know uh, vi viral or secondary bacterial infection, things like decreased level of consciousness or uh, certainly pre-syncope, syncope in this context of the pandemic raised that, that alertness. Now, just to be clear and, you know, just to just to play devil's advocate, what if they can't communicate? So what about that? So left MCA comes in, you know, right-sided hemiplegia, 
all the other symptoms? What's the issue there? Why why activate? Right. So, I mean, in that sense, you just don't have any reliable um, information, right? Especially now that there's policies at the hospitals um, not to have visitors there and family members there uh, that may um, ultimately come down to just um, uh, not taking the chance, activating a protective code stroke until you can safely clear them, whether that's uh, through a history obtained from the family later on or through a COVID swab, which um, hopefully will be processed uh, at a faster rate. Yeah, the whole collateral thing during a code stroke is now essentially difficult because the family is not there and we don't have visitors and things like that. We do want to emphasize that we do want to get that history of an infectious screen through collaterals using things like phone calls and other types of modalities sooner than later because we we don't want a person to go through a protective code stroke and maybe be downgraded and then find out you know three days later that in fact they did have an infectious contact. In fact, they had a family member who's tested positive who visited with them five days earlier or something. So that history needs to be clarified early, but but if it's not clear, it is a protected code stroke. So in summary, if there are any infectious symptoms, if there's a travel history, if there is no infection screen, or if the patient can't communicate or has other features suggestive of an alternate diagnosis, such as decreased level of consciousness, syncope, presyncope, or any other feature that suddenly makes you think about an alternative diagnosis to a primary stroke, then a protected designation is fair. And of course, if they're coming with a stroke symptom and they don't have uh, um, anything else, then you know one could consider not making it protected. But if they have any other symptom in addition to an actual stroke, then, then we have to consider during this pandemic time that this should be a protected code stroke. Okay, so now we've designated the code as a protected code stroke. And we want to break that down into, again, uh, two sort of action points. One of them is the proper uh, PPE, and there's a bunch of things that go along with that and some what are called human factors, which are things about how we actually run that as a code. And then the next part is, um, the next two parts is uh, is actually, we'll talk about like why, is there, why, why consider putting a mask on the patient and things like things you can't do to the patient in a, in a normal like in, in this type of code you couldn't do that you could do before in, in, in a non-protected code uh, and so let's walk through that and all of this is under the umbrella of something that's really important called crisis resource management which is how we think about human performance and human factors of the individuals providing the care and how to ensure that we're doing things safely so let's jump in so right off the bat we've activated a protected code stroke what kind of gear should we be using and why Right. So, I mean, you jump to the most important point, right, which is personal protective equipment. And for most protective uh, code strokes, that's going to be uh, droplet or contact, uh, droplet and contact precautions, which is a full sleeve gown, surgical mask, eye protection and gloves, ideally extended cuff gloves. But uh, in certain points, uh, there may be a risk of aerosolization. Um, and there's a few different uh, things that are kind of considered aerosol uh, generating procedures. And in those cases, we have to upgrade to airborne droplet and contact precautions, which is essentially just the, the differences in N95 mask instead of a regular surgical mask. Yeah, exactly. Jamie, what are your thoughts about that? Does that even make sense? Or like, what is what would be kind of the understanding of, of regular droplet contact? And we should probably unpack that a bit about each of those nuances. So are there nuances there that are kind of not obvious? Right. So I think it goes back to the basic understanding of what the IPAC uh, or the infection prevention uh, control uh, procedures are for, for the different types of uh, uh, infectious, uh, uh, I guess, infectious etiologies. 
Um, so I know that for uh, droplet in contact, obviously you need to be wearing gloves, gown, um, because those droplets do, uh, they say that they do have a radius typically of about uh, two meters. Um, so anyone within the two meter uh, area of the uh, patient is, is exposed and potentially at risk. Um, so needing to wear the full gloves, gown, eye protection, because um, those droplets can get into any sort of orifice in the body uh, that is exposed. Um, and as far as the aeros uh, aerosolization, from what I understand, there are uh, procedures that Pav mentioned that can do, um, that can aerosolize uh, droplets to becoming uh, micro uh, particles or uh, uh, make them smaller so they travel further in the air or sustain longer uh, in the air. Um, and for example, I think those would be like suctioning, um, intubation, uh, and, and any sort of like uh, non-invasive ventilation. That's right. We we had a chance to dive in just before the show about some of this, and, and there's some great literature from our anesthesiology colleagues many years before, and some of it in the context of SARS. So it turns out, let's just take a situation where someone coughs. If someone coughs or sneezes, what they're doing is that they're aerosolizing the secretions and uh, you know uh, oropharyngeal uh, contents into the air. That aerosolization has two components. It has components as a Jamie just mentioned, called droplets, which are generally thought to be greater than 5 microns or 5 micrometers. Those droplets are generally larger in size and generally have more, uh, you know, uh, mass, if you will. And so they tend to land within a 1 to 2 meter, better consider it safer than sorry, so 2 meter radius of the patient. And those are the droplets. However, during that aerosolization, a portion of those particles are aerosolized into finer particles generally thought to be 5 microns or less. The virus itself, believe it or not, is 0.13 or 1.2 micrometers. That means the virus particle itself as a single particle, which on its own is probably not infectious, it needs to be more of a viral load, but anyway, who knows, but the single virus is about 130 nanometers across, 10 to the minus 9 meters. And um, but But during an aerosolization, whether... It is caused by us, as Jamie said, like you said about like intubation or, or BiPAP non-invasive. That's us causing aerosolization, something called an AGMP. Um, that, but, but patients themselves can aerosolize by things like coughing. Um, and of course, there's things we can do to them that cause aerosolization. So, Pav, what is a common thing we used to normally do in a code stroke? We did sometimes a couple of things that we used to do, no problem, that now is a huge problem that you want to try to avoid. I think uh, in terms of uh, certain examination maneuvers that we do, the, the, you know, we, we like to examine multiple times throughout the code stroke. Uh, these are certain things that we might want to cut back on and try to get all the information in one go, uh, especially for the uh, MD that's designated to be in the room. Um, uh, you know, there's often a lot of time points uh, of patient provider contact, and those are the the areas that we want to improve on and sort of minimize the patient provider contact to minimize the risk of uh, transmission. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that. So uh, we talked about, uh, so knowing your IPAC, like local IPAC recommendations, certainly watch donning and doffing videos. And we talked about how it involves a gown, like a full sleeve gown, a surgical mask, and then eye protection, preferably with goggles and a face shield on top of that and then extended cuffs to uh, go over the area of the wrist so that there is there's no gap between the cuff of the glove and the cuff of the of the gown but 
Let's talk about who's in the room. So, like, when we're running these codes, normally we have, like, the staff, the fellow, sometimes another resident. We have to sometimes work on having just maybe three people plus the nurses. So you're dealing with a team of five or more. What is our current recommendation of how many people should be in the room, including the patient? You should kick the med student out first. <laughs> That's, right. <laughs> That's right. That is a good point, by the way. Anybody, including the entire stroke team, should not be in there when intubation's occurring. Intubation's a highly... Um, aerosolizing medical procedure. And if there's any major resuscitation going on where the neurology team is not involved in actually doing that recess, which I don't recommend, uh, you should be out and let the professionals do it, including at, uh, you know the, the intubating team, which is usually an experienced MD, should be the most experienced airway management MD. This is not the time for the med student or the fellow even to intubate, uh, unless they're very good, which is fine. But generally, I would say no med students and no junior <laughs> residents, senior senior residents and fellows and above. Uh, and of course, if the airway looks hard, it should be the staff uh, right off the bat uh, to intubate. But so how many people in the room, guys? What do you think? Right. So you bring some great points. And um, uh, I am more than happy to step out when the merge doc <laughs> is intubating. Um, the, the last thing the patient needs is me intubating them. So, but, you know, if, uh, if, if the patient isn't being intubated and we're running uh, an otherwise standard code stroke, uh, the, the differences are that we only want one MD in the, inside the room. And that should be ideally um, at least a senior uh, resident or the attending. Um, and uh, the uh, most um, uh, experienced nurse who there will be only one RN1 within the room and if needed an RN2 um, if there's something extra that needs to be done or the uh, nurse needs some help uh, but really that's the only people that are going to be inside the room um, and outside the room we have our MD2 so the, you know they're the ones who are collecting collateral information uh, logging onto the computer to uh, do a quick uh, uh, chart search um, and along with them we have the safety lead and I think that's actually the the key point. Um, you know, they're not exactly part of the stroke resuscitation team, but they're the ones who are kind of overlooking the whole code. And they're sort of like the safety net um, who are monitoring our donning and doffing to ensure that we're doing that appropriately, uh, to ensure that uh, only the people that need to be inside the room are inside the room. Um, and they're sort of like the quarterback. They're, they're coordinating efforts and making sure that things are done as efficiently and safely as possible. Yeah, the concept of a safety lead is key. So the safety lead could be any clinician or any provider in the hospital, could be a nurse, respiratory therapist, a portering service, anyone who's regularly uh, knows and first of all is experienced, but also knows how to do donning and doffing. And these people need to know exactly what to do to watch the team don and doff their equipment. And so the key thing is that uh, the safety lead observes the donning and doffing from outside the room and ensures that they have correct, uh, uh, essentially, uh, procedures and there are no gaps in there. For example, a gown is not torn, uh, a mask is not on incorrectly, a face shield is halfway up because, you know, emotions are running high and pulse rates are up. And so uh, the safety lead is supposed to be the cool head in the room not in the room, excuse me, outside the room, watching people don on the PPE and then communicate with the team lead. At our shop, we're using baby monitors to talk from inside the room and outside the room. And those baby monitors, for example, if the safety lead sees something weird is going on, for example, there is a trainee or someone, some extra person in there, he, could, you know, he or she could voice to the team lead and say, you know, please keep it to three people maximum in the resuscitation room. 
Um, and, and, you know, to if someone's, for example, using a stethoscope, they can say, stop, don't use a stethoscope. We don't want stethoscopes used. They're contaminated. Uh, uh, getting auscultation done brings you very close to the patient, all of those things. The safety lead also ensures that the pathway to CT or neuroangio suite is clear, that there are no contaminations of the environment. This is the time where, again, pulses are high. We don't want people who are gown and PPE with their gloves to now be touching those um, door things that open the door, those pressure, those, those pressure triggered um, switches. We don't want people to be doing that. So the safety lead is outside the room. It's not, he or she is not part of the resuscitation team, ensures donning and doffing is done correctly, ensures a clear path to the scanner and beyond, and ensures that there is no contamination of the environment. And one of the key things we want to talk about as we as we sort of wrap up is the human factors. And one of the key things to a well-running team is something that I like to call a flat hierarchy. And that flat hierarchy means that everyone on the team should be able to speak up if they see something is wrong. There shouldn't be that, you know, that that a particular member does not speak up if they see, for example, the team lead who's running the code uh, not do something correctly. Before we move on, I do want to just talk about one last key thing. Once the PPE goes on and we're in the room doing uh, the examination, which is one MD and maybe one nurse, maximum another nurse or, or an RT, um, put a mask on the patient. This may not be at the same level of understanding with the various IPACs across the country and other international sites that may be listening, but putting a mask on the patient makes scientific sense. They're the ones that may be coughing or sneezing. That aerosolization is going to generate both, as we talked about, droplets and airborne. It makes sense to stop it at the source by putting a mask, not an N95, a surgical mask on the patient. You can put nasal prongs under there. And if you're going to supply oxygen with, for example, a Venturi device, then that could be done with them on top of the mask. It's not clear, like there are different protocols. Some people want the mask over the, over the, for example, oxygen mask. Some people want it underneath, but it makes the most sense to put the face mask over the oxygen mask, excuse me, under the oxygen mask, because the oxygen mask itself is a seal. It doesn't seal perfectly. And if someone coughs, then that mask is lifted and the surgical mask, which is already not designed to really go over the contours of a mask, will not be able to do its job. So our recommendation is face mask on the patient, uh, nasal prongs underneath that mask, and if they're going to be using, um, excuse me, if they're going to be using an oxygen mask, then the mask can go on the patient, and the oxygen mask could be applied on top of the uh, on top of the masked patient, so that if they cough or if they sneeze that they are, uh, they, there is some level of protection. Once, once people are assigned these roles, like let's say obviously you, you deal with multiple strokes in one day, um, I, I, would it make most sense to keep these people in the same roles that they've been at in the beginning? Say like the senior resident who's been in the room for the first stroke should remain the same person to be in the room for the next stroke and so forth. That's a great question. So I think every day as the service comes on, they should designate the person who's going to be doing the codes. And ideally, that person should be familiar with the NIH and a more experienced attending, sorry, experienced trainee or the attending. And the reason is not because anyone who's less experienced is going to do a worse job. It's just that an attending or a senior trainee may be able to get away with less. For example, if, from, if you can quickly see that the person's got hemiplegia, gaze deviation, aphasia, you know, presenting with a full-on left MCA, a quick exam to confirm that is all that is needed. We can't go into the nuances of is the NIH 22 or is it 23 or 24. If it looks like a full syndrome, 
an experienced uh, examiner can just say, yep, I'm confident with this, let's move to the scanner. On call, again, if the person on call with the attending uh, is not very familiar, then our recommendation would be that they don't start examining the patient. Facilitate, be the safety lead. Get the team to get an IV, blood work, order entry, get them to the scanner, get them imaged, and when the imaging is done rapidly, you can powwow with the staff or the fellow to then decide who's going to go in and quickly examine the patient. Right, right. That makes absolute sense. Yeah. Maybe we want to talk about like some special scenarios. Um, I know that before uh, we kind of highlighted um, that uh, there seems to be a sort of shortage about uh, PPE um, in the hospitals. And is there anything that we can do for alternatives? Um, what, what do we do if we do encounter a shortage of PPE? Right. And this is a big, big question. But essentially what's happening is that we have various PPE drives that are happening uh, to see if there are partners in the industry who may have these types of things uh, to bring those to the hospital. And we hope that essentially what we need is a wartime effort, uh, legislation from government as it's happening to essentially legislate companies to kick into high gear and make PPE. I really hope that the PPE question will not be uh, uh, essentially a problem and that we will have adequate PPE. If we don't have adequate PPE, as we're doing right now, there's some rationing of masks. So every provider is wearing a mask throughout their whole day. It's a surgical mask. You're given two per day. And if we get into a terrible situation, then you'd have, you, you know, you'd keep a series of masks and cycle them uh, across several days. But then that would be, you know, that would have to come from IPAC. That's not going to be stroke neurology defining that. But I don't know how you would ensure that the mask has dried off and the virus has died. Uh, we have some idea of how long it lives on surfaces, but that's the kind of thing that would have to happen if there's if there's severe rationing of masks. Let's let's try to wrap up now with regards to the crisis resource management. So crisis resource management is a great framework from the Royal College at our uh, in our Canadian institution that you know will be in the show notes as well. Um, that we'll talk about how to bring a team together, but we want to highlight a few concepts. So the safety lead is key role designation and avoid overcrowding, keep the team lean. We want a lean, powerful machine to do these codes. We don't want to have a lot of people in there just to keep people that are able to get the job done, no repeat examinations, and try to contact uh, you know, other people like family and so on virtually, especially now that they're, they're not even allowed to come in as visitors. Um, but you know, during a code, you, you never know if, if the person's very unstable, they may allow a family member to come in. But this is the time again to be cool and calm. And the last part is to, uh, there's a saying that says, you know, uh, slow is smooth and, and, uh, and fast is actually slow. Um, and so what we want to do is essentially to, to encourage that people slow down, to remain vigilant and calm, and, and, to, and to sort of be uh, cognizant of that and themselves and the environment around them, which also means using uh, closed loops of communication. So for example, I would say, you know, Jamie, can you please start an IV and let me know when it's done? And you would say, IV has been started. So essentially, very, very short, brief snippets of communication that are closed loops, in addition to avoiding contamination of the environment we're in. Any other closing remarks from you guys? No, I, I mean, I, I just want to end off by saying, um, you know, stay safe. Uh, make sure you sort of follow the principles laid out in your uh, local hospitals through IPAC. Um, and just ensure that uh, uh, you stay safe because there's no emergency in a pandemic um, and we have to uh, be um, uh, smart about how we approach these things. Yeah, and I want to say uh, thank you guys for both of you putting this uh, great Protected Code Stroke uh, protocol together. 
Um, it's, it's a great ease of mind knowing that I'm coming into a program that already has, you know, precautions and protocols set in place for when I begin my education. Those are very gracious words. Thank you very much. I think we're just going to sign off by saying that we have all this information on the website, in the show notes, the manuscript is coming out. We have a blog post that's coming out as well. If there are any questions, any members of our team could be contacted and we'll get together as a team and help answer them. And if you need help, uh, go ahead and contact us and we can help kind of give you some uh, point pointers on how to navigate your local protocols. And of course, respect your local protocols and know them, uh, but we can definitely help navigate certain questions that may come up because they're common across sites. And lastly, stay safe out there. Uh, everybody's appreciated. Everyone is doing their best. We really appreciate everybody. And uh, these are very challenging times, but we hope that this small contribution could help. And, and we look forward to seeing you on the flip side on uh, Stroke FM. Jamie, signing off. Have signing off. Signing off. See you next time.